Hello, I'm Emily Burrell. And I'm Steve Avadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger. In August of 2020, while the United States was squarely focused on its own contentious election, the presidential contest in Belarus was stolen. I mean, actually stolen. The opposition candidate and political observers both say the numbers have been blatantly falsified. These elections were neither free nor fair and did not meet international standards. A former Soviet republic of 9 million people, Belarus has since played an outsized role in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It serves as the staging ground for much of Vladimir Putin's multiple assaults on Kyiv, just 50 miles south of the Belarusian border. And the man who has made that role possible is the same man who stole those elections in 2020, the autocrat Alexander Lukashenko. Lukashenko has won the presidency in Belarus every time since 1994. All but one of those elections have been panned as fraudulent. He's a close ally and some would say a puppet of Putin's regime. I'm ready to provide territory again, but I'm also ready to wage war together with the Russians. To many, though, it seemed like 2020 was going to be different. A broad coalition had rallied around the opposition candidate, Svetlana Tsihanouskaya. She decided to run for president after her husband, who had hoped to challenge Lukashenko, was arrested on bogus charges. Told you the government crackdown fired up her campaign. You know, our people's eyes just opened and they saw this violence. Early indications following the August 9th election were that Sihanouskaya was going to pull off an upset victory despite the official numbers. People were sure that Tsihanouskaya is winning, but the results differed. So people started protesting against the falsification of the results. This is Volia Visotskaya. And the authorities reacted very harshly to the, um, the protests. Never before have so many people in Belarus taken to the street to protest. And the first night, people started to disappear. We are protesting here against the violence which is happening. They went to the protests and then their relatives lost them. So we started to look for them in detention facilities. But under no conditions can people be beaten up and raped in the police station. The dreaded riot police in Belarus, known as Amman, were carrying out many of these disappearances. This was when, for the first time, Visotskaya got political. She started taking real risks. Having watched the election from abroad, she returned to the Belarusian capital to get involved. In mid-August, I arrived to Minsk. I started observing the trials, absolutely unfair trials. And I realized that we need to do something more than just observing and promoting the human rights defense. And it was the moment when me and my team started to identify the state actors involved in the human rights violations in Belarus. The people of Belarus deserve better. They deserve the democratic right to choose their leaders and shape their future. Colleagues Steve Parks and Sirja Popovich caught up recently with Visotskaya. They interviewed her to talk about her activism for the first installment of an occasional segment we are calling The Power of Many. 
Steve and Serja have been supporting, training, and learning from pro-democracy advocates around the globe. In collaboration with our team, they're going to bring you some of their stories. Right, so a little more background. Serja is a native of Serbia. As a young man, he stood up to the genocidal regime of Slobodan Milosevic back in the late 1990s. Steve is a UVA English professor and the director of the Democratic Futures Project. Now, we're going to pick up the conversation right where Steve was asking Serja for some insight on Visotskaya's movement in Belarus and what was going on at the time. Um, It might be useful to hear a little bit more about the context in which this moment happened in Belarus. What Volia is saying is actually really interesting. Uh, Election fraud uh, has two effects normally on societies. It was very similar in Serbia 2000, very similar in Georgia, very similar in Ukraine. First, it shows everybody that the emperor is naked. So it's like you don't really have a legitimacy. People don't want you. And whatever you say on the TV, your own army, your own police, they know that. And the other one, it pisses everybody off. So people feel this personally because now it becomes personal. Somebody stole your vote, which is like somebody stealing your wallet. So besides projecting himself as a strong man, this repression, this pressure, this uh, new alliance with Putin, putting his military inside Belarus uh, is actually a sign of weakness. This is where I will move to Volya and see what she thinks. Uh, Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. I think Lukashenko had never been weaker than in 2020 and after 2020. And he remains very weak, even though he tries to pretend he is not, even though he tries to pretend he keeps his legitimacy internationally and nationally. People say he is the president of Amon. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, what we're witnessing is sort of the violence of Lukashenko's machine that he's built up through the years to keep himself in power and to keep people feeling that they don't have a sense of hope, that change is impossible. I know when the protest started um, and you saw that the police were acting, in some sense, with anonymity and uh, without consequence, you tried to change that through starting a telegram channel called the Black Book of Belarus. Can you tell us a little bit about that channel? What did it do and what was it successful at? Yeah, the channel is the channel with the data of the police officers, the state actors involved in human rights violations in Belarus. We worked with open sources, with pictures spotted by journalists, pictures sent to us by people who participated in protests, um, with documents sent to us also by people who participated in protests, with the names of police officers and other state actors involved in unfair trials, involved in violence, involved in tortures, etc. We found their data also on the open sources and then just posted it, just showing to people who were looking for those who brought that much violence to the society, which showed that they're not just the police in Balaclavas. They're the ordinary people. They're our neighbors, friends, relatives. So we humanized them. And it definitely worked. They felt very insecure. They discussed the channels between themselves when they were bringing people from 
like from arrest to detention facility, they were asking people if they are going to send their pictures to the Black Book of Belarus. And there was one police officer who reached to us and said, like, uh, please delete my data because I didn't participate in anything unlawful. And we said, like, we have the document proven that you did. And he said, but I participated only once. Please delete my data. So, yeah, it seems like uh, committing a crime once is not committing a crime for the regime. Yeah, well, yeah, it's like the, let's come back to this particular moment. How did you felt? How did you pick this particular course of action? So yes, you can trial people, you can arrest people, but there will be a price tag. People will know who you are. So it's like, uh, uh, and then what happens? You're becoming effective and how come they come after you? Yeah, it happened in October, 2020, when the protests were still active. The, the information that we, Uh, posted on in Telegram, and the way the information got spread, it reached the top. So they decided to stop somehow the organization or to understand like what, how do we operate? How to stop us? There was a person who said like, "I'm a bankier. I have the access to the data of people, so I want to help you." So he reached us through the Telegram chat, and we made the greatest mistake because first we took the information from him and later because of the trust that he built with the team we started giving him information as well so we allowed him to get a bit closer to the team to the information that we got so the government successfully let's say put this pie into our team one one of the impacts of that is that didn't they ground orion airplane to try to get someone from your group Yeah, in May 2021, the civil society started to be absolutely destroyed in Belarus. And the greatest media outlet was destroyed as well. The protests still went on, but not that active. And uh, the information that we published started to be used to bring it to real investigations. And probably the government felt very insecure because of that. And yeah, in May 2021, the Ryanair flight was landed in Minsk uh, forcefully with military uh, airplanes, saying that there is a risk of terrorist attack. And one of our team members was arrested and another journalist was arrested with her. I mean, what we're sort of hearing is like the toolkit of authoritarians, right? They infiltrate, they repress. And increasingly, it seems like they're also trying to revoke citizenship. And that's something I think that's happening in Belarus. How are you responding to that? Well, first, I would like to say that the way they work is that they change the way the law works. So it's not the rule of law, it's the rule by law. And that is what the government of Lukashenko does. They change the laws gradually, constantly, just to rule by it. And what they did in 2022, they changed the law on citizenship. And now it's possible to deprive those people who were sentenced in absentia because of extremist articles. And how we are going to respond to it is uh, the democratic powers now are advocating for the new passports of uh, independent Belarus. Um, nobody knows if it would work uh, because the passports are not legitimate yet. But there is advocacy to support those people who can be deprived of citizenship. And what we are doing now is just advocating for our rights to stay in safety in those countries where we are now. Obviously, it's a wave of oppression, both to the people inside the country and out, uh, which brings us to your own personal case. So you are trialed in absent? Yeah, it happened last year. 
Um, in summer 2022, the government changed the law, uh, the criminal legislation, and it started to allow the um, authorities to trial people in absentia for committing some very serious crimes, like, for instance, the incitement of social hatred, which is uh, the crime that the authorities state I committed. So after the breakdown on our team, after the destruction of our team, we became the first five people to be tried in absentia in the history of Belarus. All of us were sentenced to 12 years of imprisonment. Some of us have the chance of being deprived of uh, their possessions in Belarus. And all of us are supposed to be deprived of citizenship. So because of your work, you were targeted, you were repressed, you were expelled. Uh, now you are sentenced and you cannot go back, but still you are carrying on from exile. So what you are doing now and what you're trying to achieve with your organization being outside of Belarus. And by the way, where do you live now? I live in Lithuania, which is a pretty safe place in sense of the legal protection for Belarusians now. I continue working on the investigation of the violation of human rights in Belarus. I do advocacy campaigns for political prisoners in Belarus. For today, there are more than 1,500 political prisoners in Belarus. And this is just the number of officially recognized political prisoners. In reality, at least there are two times more people imprisoned for political reasons. I believe in bringing accountability to those who violated human rights in Belarus and the advocacy campaigns to bring back the rule of law to Belarus, the legal researches, the legal campaigns. I'm wondering um, how the situation you've been describing Western Belarus ties in with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which Belarus, at least its leadership, has supported. Um, and many advocates in Belarus have been targeted for objecting to the invasion. Is there a sense of quiet consensus in Belarus, like sort of opposing the war, or is the Russian influence more dominant? Well, first, we need to look back to, in general, the relations of Lukashenko with Putin, and in particular to 2020, when Putin was going to support Lukashenko even with the help of his own police or even with military forces. So it allowed Lukashenko to stay in power. And for this reason, in 2022, Lukashenko provided Putin with the territory of Belarus to launch the invasion, to launch the missile rockets to Ukraine. And it resulted in mass protests in Belarus again, even though the civil society was absolutely destroyed, even though thousands of people were imprisoned for political reasons, even though the protests were absolutely cracked down, people went to protest against the war in Ukraine just the day it started. And of course, thousands of people were arrested that day. Thousands of people were arrested later. Later, the people started the partisan campaigns like um, partisan actions on railways, for instance, or like on some military bases. And people are still being arrested for these actions. People are still being arrested for the comments on social media against the war in Ukraine. But it's hard to say what is the real mood of the society regarding the war in Ukraine, because, for instance, the most popular political analyst in Belarus among the youth is a Russian one, and the elder population is still listening to the Russian propaganda on the TV, because the Belarusian TV is full propaganda TV. But at the same time, people still protest. So I think it's important to mention both sides. Uh, getting to the wider context, Volia, you know I'm in a business of trying to educate people who, who run the campaigns uh, on one struggle. What may be the lessons learned for other activists? So 
If there is one advice you can give to the people, like, let's do this because it worked in Belarus, or if there is a one thing we say, oh, we screw this up, don't do this. Let's unite in solidarity, definitely. Solidarity is one of the most effective ways to bring people together, uh, is one of the strongest movements in general. So definitely unite in solidarity. That's a great point, unity and solidarity. But how do you achieve this on the ground? I would say through the actions showing the people that they can bring changes with tiny steps, with just going to help a person to get a ride from a detention facility and bring them back home. Or you can just help a person with medical assistance or you can just support them mentally. So there are the tiny steps that show to people that they can influence the situation. And that's what worked in Belarus. People united against the violence in Belarus. People were standing not to allow it to happen anymore. I'm just wondering, like, how do you go about building solidarity? Well, first of all, the Russian example, and I think what is too modest on it, uh, makes a lot of sense, uh, especially how unity is achieved through use of symbol, specifically the old Belarusian flag, which was A, easy for people to identify with, B, complicated for regime to ban, leading them to some ridiculous actions like putting down the Christmas trees, which were decorated in red and white. Uh, most importantly, building the identity of the movement so people can identify themselves, not through the leaders, because leaders will be arrested, but through wearing a color. Or a symbol shows people that they can do something small. It gives them the meaningful course of action. But more importantly, for the people who pay the ultimate price and in jail and jobless and kicked out of the jail without chances to get work, it sends an important message that they won't be left behind. Supporting people who get in trouble really matter in the movement. And I I, I can only applaud Volia being so persistent in raising attention and raising funds for those people who risk their life and freedom for Belarusian democracy, because this is also a message. Movement will be there for you. We will take care of your family. We will try our best to take care of your family. You will not be forgotten. This is so important for these people rotting in Lukashenko's cells. It strikes me that one of the stories we're hearing today is sort of a learning curve. Leaders are learning from each other. You almost have this like little authoritarian university percolating across the globe. And so I'm just wondering, um, how does the Belarusian experience, either in terms of what Lukashenko has learned in terms of maintaining power, perhaps, Serge, or what you've learned, Volya, in terms of how you resist that power, how can Belarus teach us larger lessons about what's happening right now with authoritarian leaders? Well, I would first say that the authoritarian leaders don't only learn from each other, but they do cooperate to remain in power. What we learned with our movement is that they definitely know how to work with the data. Uh, they definitely know how to identify people because while we were taking pictures of theirs, uh, of state actors, and identifying them the same moment, they were just calmly recording people protesting in the streets. And now they use these videos to identify the protesters, to arrest them and to imprison them. The Chinese development of face recognition are being used on the Russians as well, and they cooperate to share them. What we could learn from each other is to focus on the things crucial for justice, even though it's hard, but when the state declines to perform its functions, 
which should perform their functions. Like either it's investigations or it's the provision of help to the victims or it's the political preparation of the new leaders. We should do that and we should provide them with the space for their actions. I think it's very important for other activists not to forget that even when the state commits crimes, there are still crimes and we need to investigate them. Uh, obviously, autocrats learn from each other. Recently, it seems that the, they know also how to spread this virus to democracies. And unfortunately, the trends show that uh, where democracy is in danger the most is in uh, previous democracies, places like Hungary, uh, where government obviously is using some repressive tools and borrowing from autocratic arsenals. We've seen a pretty pro-Russian party winning elections in Slovakia a few weeks ago. Uh, but once again, we always need to take a look at how democracy is fought for on a forefront. Whatever autocrats try to do, you need unity, you need solidarity, you need planning, and you need small victories in order to prevail. That was Sergei Popovich speaking with Steve Parks and Belarusian activist Volia Visotskaya. You're listening to Democracy in Danger. We're part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. You can find it at democracygroup.org. We'll be right back. Emily, you know, it's always simultaneously bracing for me and somewhat comforting to know that as complicated as things are here in the United States, we are nowhere near as deep into the authoritarian moment as some other places that just 30 years ago seemed to be on the way to much better lives and times. Yeah. I mean, 94, things really start to take a turn in mm -hmm. Belarus. And this is at a moment where we see turns towards democratic formations in a lot of the former Soviet Union, not so much in Belarus, right? right? It was always the outlier. Wasn't That's it? right. Yeah. That's right. And so what I was really struck by in listening to her is the bravery and the heroics yes. of activists like her who are really working hard to call the Belarusian government uh, responsible and holding them accountable right, um, right. for infiltrating groups on the ground, grassroots efforts to uh, expand democratic discussions. So her interview is a really stark reminder that democracy is in danger. Right? Yeah. And, and differently in different parts of the post-Soviet empire, right? That's right. We can look at Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and we can just be so like pleased with the level of stability and investment in peace and prosperity and in democracy in places like those, right? The, the Baltic states. And yet you look at Kazakhstan or you look at Belarus and you see nothing but horror. And in many of these states, and I mean, you have to include Chechnya in this now, right? Georgia, right? They seem to be once again, under the Russian arm. That's right. And Russian um, influence in parts of the world where I work, right? right? So West Africa has become very powerful and um, arguably a, a sinister dark, dark force. 
We sometimes look to what's happening now with Putin consolidating power in the global south, in the former colonized world, Mm -hmm. and say, oh, what's happening now in the 21st century is an extension of the Cold War. It's the Cold War all over again. No, it's not necessarily the Cold War all over again. There are some really important differences. One of those differences, um, I think, is in part the role that Belarus is playing, um, particularly for Africa. Say more about that. Like, So what's, what's the connection between the Wagner group, which we think of as a Russian paramilitary force active in Ukraine, right? That's what we know most about it. But there's a lot more to the story, right? Yeah. So so the the Wagner group or the Wagner group, uh, you know, they were able to really regroup um, and identify a new strategy and and take a beat once they retreated to Belarus. Um, Belarus provided them with safe harbor after um, the attempted, you could say, attacks on Putin's regime in right. June. And you know, it became really clear that from Belarus, using Belarus as a as a launching pad, mm. that the Wagner Group was able to um, build up new stores of power and focus in um, propping up autocratic regimes across the continent of Africa. Really, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who was the the leader of the of the Wagner Group, in a in a video that he recorded shortly before he was assassinated, he made it really clear mm-hmm. that the Wagner Group's priority was operations in Africa, throughout mm-hmm. Africa, and that the goal would be to use Libya as as a launching pad, wow. and eastern Libya in particular, as a place from which. Um, Operations in Africa would would be directed almost like an AFRICOM uh, center for the wow. Wagner Group in That's Eastern Libya. Fascinating. Tell me more about what's going on in Sub-Saharan Africa. What is the Wagner Group doing specifically, and where? So the origins of the Wagner Group are often tied to um, the aftermath of the Russian invasion and annexation of Crimea in 2014. At the time, though, they weren't seen as highly organized, but they Mm. quickly became so. And eventually... Prigozhin became mm-hmm. um, their leader. Mm. Um, and former under, chef for Putin, exactly. right? Exactly. Former chef, yeah. confidant. Yeah, old buddy. It's a story you really can't make up. Right, I mean, it, right, it, it's right. almost like a Jean Le Carré right, story. Right, right. So Wagner became really powerful. They established operations in Central African Republic to prop up the autocratic president there. They continue to be uh, active on the ground in Central African Republic and are often seen as one of the the more powerful and influential military forces right. on the ground rather than a CAR state-sanctioned army. And it was really not that long after mm. that that the Wagner forces were operating on the ground in Sudan and in Libya almost as a mercenary force. They could operate in a way that was outside of the reach of the United Nations right. and, and international treaties. With deniability exactly. for the government, right? So Putin could like wink at what they were doing. That's right. Yeah. It, make no mistake, the, the Wagner group operates at Vladimir Putin's- Some um, of his private henchmen. Exactly. Right. Um, and it allows the Russian government to make certain kinds of influential moves in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, but also North Africa, especially in the Sahel, where Russia wants to gain a foothold and an influence, certain kinds of concessions, deals around mineral rights. Mm. This is oftentimes what's at the heart. So are they just like a mob group making threats or making idle threats? Are they actually like killing people? Well, so... That's a good question. That's a really good question, Siva. So the Wagner Group is really a dark force, to be 
quite simple. I mean, they're, they're guilty of committing human rights abuses, executing civilians in villages. I mean, this is this has been a real problem in Mali in particular. Mm-hmm. In Sudan, they're responsible for cracking down on protesters on the streets. The Wagner military forces are directly implicated and active in the suppression of democratic protests in a number of different African contexts from Burkina Faso to Mali, Libya. And, you know, we'll see how much um, activity they really are able to organize in places like Niger. Yeah. So, Emily, one of the things that I find really enlightening about the conversations that we've been recording for The Power of Many is the extent to which we see how autocratic regimes around the world learn from each other and actually actively coordinate. And and I think it's super important for us to grasp that while we're not seeing an international fascist or authoritarian movement per se, we are seeing a chorus of themes, a lot of xenophobia, a lot of fear of LGBTQ people, a lot of fear of the power and status of women improving in the world. You know, one of the things that's really interesting is that there have been a number of interviews and surveys recently in African countries where democracy is on trial. Mm -hmm. And the overwhelming majority of respondents say that they want democracy, Mm -hmm. that they believe in what we would call core democratic values around representative government, free and fair Mm -hmm. elections, free press, public education. This is what people are asking for and what they want on the ground. What's happening in places, however, However, like the Central African Republic, like the coup that just occurred in Gabon, we see autocrats, many of whom were democratically elected, we should remember, shoring up strongman power, you Mm -hmm. could say. Right. So we know that the strongman cult or phenomenon in Africa is not new, right? We've seen Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. We've seen Idi Amin, of course, you know, notoriously in Uganda, right? I think the difference we're seeing in the 21st century versus the 20th century is the influence of both Russia and China in their efforts, not necessarily to dominate these countries, but to sponsor them enough to be able to extract resources and develop markets. Mm -hmm. So in other words, they're almost neo-mercantile relationships with China and Russia. And that's not to say that Europe and the United States are not playing similar games in similar ways. Yes, I think that this is this is really true. Um, in the 2000s, as a part of the war on terror, um, money shifted from the Department of State to the Department of Defense that typically had gone into sort of civilian grassroots capacity building. Sure. And so the DOD was doing a lot of it. Fast forward a bit. Further, you look at places like Mali, places like Niger, where there were very active, um, stable democracies. If you had told me in 2003 that Mali would have experienced a coup in 2012, I don't think I would have believed you. But who rises to power, who steps in? It's actually Malian military who had received training from the American military in an effort to fight the war on terror against Mm -hmm. Islamist regimes from the north. But what ends up happening is that these soldiers who have been trained by the United States end up toppling their own governments. So it's almost like the shockwaves of colonialism are still rocking, the shockwaves of the Cold War are still rocking, and the shockwaves of the war on terror post-2001 are still echoing through the world. And then layer onto that, the 
turmoil in Russia as Putin takes command and then gets nervous about his status, right? So many of these things are now rocking their way across the world and wave after wave after wave is shaking the foundations of democracy. That's all for this episode. We have much more coming your way this season, including a conversation about artifacts once stolen from their countries of origin and why they matter. Are you a tireless activist in your own neck of the woods? We want to hear from you. You can tweet us your thoughts at DND Podcast. That's D I N D Podcast. Or leave a comment on our webpage, dendanger.org. Sign up for our newsletter and catch up on all our recent episodes, including two live shows we did recently from Texas and from here in Virginia. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengall, Nicholas Scott, and Stephen Betts. Ariana Aronson handles our social media. Adine Yeager engineers the show. Our interns are Charlie Burns, Lena Freyha, Katie Pyle, Makdum Morad Shah, and Caroline Yu. And we have help from Ellie Salvatierra. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Emily Burrow. See you soon. Mm-hmm.